0: back to another episode of out of the blank podcast mr jenkins a pleasure to have you on the show would you like to introduce yourself to everyone out there listening
1: sure i'm henry jenkins uh i'm provost professor of communication journalism cinematic art education and east asian studies at the university of southern california so when we talk
0: about communication where do you particularly focus when it comes to communication
1: well, my, my focus, a large chunk of it, has been on fandom, or what I like to call participatory culture. Uh, by participatory culture, I'm, I, we might think go back and think about folk culture, right? I like to say that my grandmother was a remix artist, and that she made quilts. So she and the other women of Appalachia would take scraps of cloth left over from other sewing projects, pull them together and create something. And it's a space where the young learn by observing the old and they're given as part of a gift economy. That world got pushed aside for much of the 20th century by mass media, right? Which was media that was mass produced, mass distributed, mass consumed, and which left very little room for anyone to participate. But for me, fandom, is the 21st century form. I mean, it goes through the 20th century. It was in a niche, but now it's much more central, where we take material from mass culture and use it as raw material for grassroots cultural production. So everyday people taking images or video footage or sound or costume elements and creating something new which expresses their identity. Uh, in relation to the dominant stories of their time, could you give me an
0: example? Only thing I could really think of that's like a remix would be like if someone took a beat from like an older song and then tried to chop it up into a newer song. But I don't think that's the same.
1: Well, that's that would be part of it. But let's—I've been playing around lately with MidJourney, the 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 AI visual AI program, and if I asked for something, MidJourney is automatically mixing together. Elements from multiple images to create something new. Or if I was a fan vitter and I take snippets from my favorite television show and I set music to it, I can create a new expression of who those characters are, how they feel about the world. Or if I'm a cosplayer, I can certainly reproduce the original costume, but say Muslim cosplayers are using the hijab to create Princess Leia's hair buns, uh, and creating you know an expression that is both respects their traditional religious practice, but is also trying to creatively respond to, to, to Star Wars. And we could just keep going down the line. All forms of fan creation don't simply slavishly reproduce the original, they're taking elements of the original and mixing them together. Now, my view is just as the textile mills should have very little to say what what happens to those scraps of cloth that my grandmother made into quilts, I would argue that media companies should have relatively little to say about what use I make of their stories, their images, their characters, their languages once they're put into circulation. That is, I buy into a media system, I own it, in a moral sense and i should have the right to recreate it in whatever way i want
0: does that cross in between with like copyright laws like sometimes i experience that and like infringement issues i never really take anything i I usually just only really try and stick to my own content but sometimes if i show something that might be related or i might take something and then chop it up like this shirt can technically be a john wick Knockoff because it looks like John Wick a little bit, but it's not that at all. It's just AI created art. And I did my own editing, like put my face on it and things of that sort. But technically, I mean, Teespring had to wait on that design because they thought it would be copyright infringement I'm like, well, they don't own somebody looking off to the distance, like if an explosion's behind them, but they don't care.
1: Well, I mean, if we, you know, we go back to traditional stories, I don't know whether it's Pecos Bill or Brer Rabbit or the myths of the Greek world, they belong to the folk, and the folk had the right to retell them. And we know the traditional storytellers, the bards, the the garrows, told those stories in a variety of ways for various occasions. The problem is today, our folk culture belongs to corporations, and there's an open battle over how much freedom we have to express ourselves in relation to the core stories of our time. Now, one argument is that this constitutes transformative work. That is, there's copy there's fair use protections for works that provide critical commentary that significantly change uh, the original in order to make a point. So we could say your t-shirt does that. You're you know, even if you know you're probably totally outside of any gray area there with that shirt. But we can imagine a shirt that is consciously evokes John Wick but put your face on it and make some sort of comment about the John Wick franchise, that would be transformative work and theoretically protected. So the question is, how far can we go? And I think that's going to be one of the central battles of the 21st century. Let's take, for example, the Guy Fawkes mask, which was used heavily by Occupy, Wall Street, the Anonymous Movement, other protesters. Now, in the UK, that's a folk practice, right? Guy Fawkes was an historical figure. The Guy Fawkes mask has been used by folk protests for hundreds of years. But in the US, the Guy Fawkes mask came in through V for Vendetta, the Alan Moore graphic novel that's turned into a film by the Wachowskis. Uh, And therefore, Warner Communication, Inc. owns the rights to the Guy Fawkes mask in the United States, which means that every Occupy protester who wears a Guy Fawkes mask is actually putting money into a multinational media corporation. And in theory, the corporation would ha- might assert the right to prevent us from wearing it in certain contexts or be photographed wearing it. I think in reality, we'd all find that objectionable. So why would we accept the premise that if I use Star Trek characters, say that it's fair game for Paramount to try to shut me down?
0: I think it's because when we don't really see it as imitating art at just because you enjoy it, a lot of these corporations that kind of run the rules or are able to push some of these rules in is because it's about they're stealing their image. Kind of in a sense, like it's got, I would say it got linked over with capitalism in the 21st century. It seems like everybody's got to have a copyright thing now. But I mean, even one of my all time favorite songs is Sam Cooke's A Change is Gonna Come. Um, it was reproduced, covered, and there was no problems with it. But then I think it was like six years ago, a record label had bought Sam Cooke's song and reproduced it with one artist. But then now, if you go to it, you have to go through a contract agreement with the studios. And it was like, well, that song invokes so much emotion. I would consider that. I mean, it's obviously not public domain, but I mean, it's a cultural significance to impact. I mean, especially during like the civil rights type deal. I mean, that's a lot of people that make those documentaries about civil rights use that song, but nope, now a corporation owns the rights to that. You have to go through them. And they're kind of as big as Warner Brothers, where if you send them an email, they're not going to respond to you unless you got money at the door. Yeah, you
1: can't ask them for permission. So therefore you either risk corporate bullying if they discover you, or you have to assert fair use and hope for the best, recognizing that legally fair use is a defense, not a right. But, you know, I think if you're absolutely right about corporate and capitalism being at the center of this. So if we go back through that folk culture, mass culture, participatory culture model that I was just describing, that under folk culture, copyright isn't, there's almost no use of copyright to force ownership over stories or visual images. It starts to come in in the late 19th century, where certain public figures like Oscar Wilde wants to control his image. By the mid-century, capitalism has totally created this empire around intellectual property, and the notion that ideas are property has become so widespread and accepted. Now, my argument is that it's starting to break down in this era of participatory culture. And particularly, we throw in the network distribution of participatory culture, where a grassroots remixing could be, as as a meme say, could be as widespread and known in the culture as the mass media object it draws up. So we're seeing a struggle right now over who owns the stories that form the foundation of our culture. Who has the right to the songs? Who has the who shapes the rights, the rituals we perform socially? Uh, who controls the spaces where we gather? If we're thinking about massively multiplayer games, so I think we're at a moment of upheaval over these core questions, and I think the struggle of the terms of our participation will be the central struggle of culture and politics in the 21st century.
0: Could you give me an example, like even with, I mean, because usually when I log on to media, it's everything seems political divides now. Like, I mean, politics is somewhere got so linked into media. Maybe it's just because I'm focusing on it more. The algorithms are pointing me more into that section, but it seems like I can't even touch a topic that's not engrossed into the political climate. And I happen to not fall on any political side, really. I have no left or right. I'm kind of like, just like, Based on my human ethics type, you like don't hurt people, like that's kind of like my motto and stuff like that. That's but, a good
1: starting point, sure,
0: yeah. But even I would just say, like, I would just go deep state all the way because when people say that, they roll their eyes. And I go, When I mean a deep state, I usually say capitalism, it's a system that's somehow entrenched itself into things that we shouldn't have capitalistic stuff involved in. And then people go, Okay, that makes more sense. I'm like, But really, just keeps me out of the argument of if you're a Democrat, Republican, liberal, whatever, just I don't want to. I, it just people see that at the front door when they look at someone compared to the person's name or what the person's thoughts and feelings are i'm like if we all start talking we all start agreeing on a lot of basic stuff
1: no i think they're i mean we're finding that i i've been doing these civic imagination workshops all across the country red states and blue states sitting down with everyday people and imagining future worlds together as a way of getting out of the political impasses we're in now, so we like to go to the year twenty sixty three now, which is you know, uh, you know, forty years into the future. What would be the what would we think the ideal world would look like? And we're using tools from fandom and from science fiction, speculative fiction, to do world building together. And what we find is a lot of agreement as we get out of you know, is it Trump versus Biden, and into a world where we're looking at core core values. Often, it's hard to tell in the room who's the Republican and who's the Democrat. Now, as people start to imagine the future, they start to incorporate ideas and images from science fiction. It's pretty natural. So if we asked you to imagine the future of transportation, maybe you imagine the teleportation system from Star Trek, right? Which happens all the time when we do these workshops. So at that point, what is that teleportation a solution to? For Americans, when we've done them, it's often to the energy problems, the environmental problems. The idea that maybe beaming me up, Scotty, is less environmentally disruptive than flying sheets of metal with fossil fuel across the planet. When we do it in Europe, it's often about efficiencies. The Europeans love their train system, but it's also you've got to change multiple times to get between some of the key cities in the European Union. And so the idea, if you could beam from Brussels to Berlin, that would be very appealing. We did it in uh, Beirut with leaders, educational leaders of 10 Arab countries. For them, it was all about safety. Right. How they were watching people die getting from Syria to Germany. And if you could just beam there, it would be much more powerful. When we've done it with immigrant rights organizations, they talk about papers and green cards and borders. Because when Kirk, Spock, and McCoy beam down to a planet, no one stops and asks for their papers. Right. It's by de facto a world without borders. And we did it recently in West Virginia, rural West Virginia, the coal country. And there, it was about just being part of the country. For them, they're so cut off from the world, but the idea that their kids could pop over by teleportation to visit, you know that the tourist might come in because it wasn't so far and hard to get there, that sense of social isolation. So by using shared stories and shared symbols politically, socially, civically, we're able to actually understand what's at stake for these different communities in really powerful ways.
0: It's interesting to me that you might be a little bit more optimistic about the future than I am. I'm a little bit more pessimistic um, just because I feel like it's kind of like Pandora's box. We somehow opened up to where even in political climates that we have fandoms there now. And I feel like that just doesn't does that leak does that end with the trump and biden era or does it keep on going it's kind of like maybe this is the new start and i look at the past too i've been entrenched in the 70s and 60s and 50s i mean it's like slapping the brand communism on something without even fully understanding it now it's american versus communism and now we just divide it into smaller categories of right versus left or democrat versus republican which i think has kind of always been there especially since like the 90s but it just seems like now it just keeps getting more divided and more divided or splitting and splitting and splitting. And I don't want individual communities or states to be individual. You know what I mean? I don't want us all to act as a whole. But I mean, the only thing I can think of to fix that would be going against capitalism in a sense. But then even then, some people bring up the argument capitalism works. I'm like, sure, but it doesn't need to be a part of our every single life.
1: No, well, I, I mean, I mean, I am something of an optimist, but let me be clear. I'm not suggesting that I'm bringing people together to imagine the world they think will be. And I certainly have bad days where I would totally agree with most of what you just said and wonder, how do we ever overcome the cultural divides? Oh, let's
0: drink some whiskey and talk about it. Come on.
1: <laughs> yeah, but that's the, that is the point. Drinking whiskey is a so something that brings us together on common grounds. And that's what these imagination workshops do as well, is... We're asking people to imagine what the world they would like to live in looks like, and it's a way of articulating shared values, norms, hopes, aspirations. It's also a kind of utopian thought, and historically, utopianism is not about naivety and belief in a perfect world. Utopianism is a critical tool which allows us to ask some fundamental questions. What kind of world would we want to live in? Would that world turn out to be as good as we imagine it to be? How do we, what's the difference between the perfect world and the world we're living in? And what are the decisive steps we should take to get there? So if we think about Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, where he's imagining a post-segregated society, he's not saying we live we we can overcome racism, he's saying, what would it take to be able to confront racism and move to a world where we were treated each other as equals? How can we measure the steps we need to take? He's not saying this is a world that's inevitably going to come. He's saying, if, they, if we think this is our ideal society, how do we get there? And that challenge back to the present is always present in a utopian narrative. So what we're doing is getting everyday people all across America to think in utopian terms to articulate what they want. And we discover when that happens that the divides we're experiencing are largely artificial. The political leaders trump them up, pun intended, by using divisive language, hitting cultural war metaphors and so forth to keep us at odds with each other. Whereas the reality is on an underlying basis, we share more values in common than we disagree, but we're not allowed to see that. And again, capitalism may be a factor in that.
0: Abraham Lincoln, uh, House Divided Cannot Stand. Um, I think that people can come together to bring real social change and real change in general, but it's about making sure like, people could even have the conversation about it now. I mean, I think most people, they choose like a media outlet, and they tend to jump on that train and jump on that. Like... It's so boiled down from political leaders down into some of the most important instruments, that I would say, the public gets their information from. I mean, we entered a really dangerous time when it was about disinformation and misinformation. I was like, well, who 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 has the I can't think of a single person, let alone be the president who would want that, but who would want the ability to say this information is the one that we accept. And this is this. I'm like, well, you got to let people talk as well, too. And maybe that's an unpopular opinion. But limiting speech is a big problem for, in my opinion, oh, on all because, sides. Yeah. I mean,
1: the left limits speech, the right limits speech. What we need is more speech, not less. Right. I'm totally against cancel culture, whether it's canceling people's ability to talk about homosexuality in school. Or it's canceling someone because they made a, quote, problematic statement about race, right? Those are both censorous moves that I think we have to, you know, we have to sort of slow down our desire to silence other people. What we're trying to do is go to places and encourage talk, encourage talk across these divides, because I think that's what we need to do. At, you know, and I think we're—I think that desire for conversation is really powerful and urgently needed. So we went to, as I said, these two small towns in West Virginia that bordered each other. One of them had a Republican mayor, an old older man. Another had a Democratic uh, mayor who was a young w- w- woman. And as they came together, they were facing serious crisis. If she rode, you know, we met and. This was a coal town, the coal mines had closed. This was a university town, the university had closed. Most of their children had moved away and not come back. The shops along the main street were boarded up. We met in a university library that had no books in it. And we spent a day talking through the future of this community. And, you know, people by about the first hour, it was impossible to tell who were the Republicans and who the Democrats were, because what they cared about was this community. And all of these people had a history in this town going back generations, right? they lived together, they'd worked together, they'd supported each other. And now they were trying to figure out how to survive in this world. And that need to survive certainly trumped any notion of political partisanship, right? That, that became nonsense in that discussion. But using this world building practice, we were able to pull out and find that common ground that then the political leaders, the community could work on. But it was because they heard each other out, because they talked. Now you mentioned Scott or Bourbon, I forget which. Yeah, that would be nice, but we didn't need that in that setting because we used the imagination and we used the stories we shared in common to get there. But again, if we go back to what I was saying earlier about copyright, if those stories are not available for us to speak to our own experiences and realities, then our ability to communicate across difference is severely limited. Because right now our civic imagination is grounded in popular fiction. Now, what do I mean by the civic imagination? Well, the civic is not just the political. Politics is about power distribution civics is about the social connections we have with each other so historically we would have an election and then we'd come back together as a community so joe the plumber may be a republican and i'm a democrat but at the end of the day i need a good plumber he keeps the you know he fixes my toilet we get along we hang out and have beers together ultimately our social connections are to each other are stronger than our political divides but we've reached the point where we have trouble imagining that, right? We're moving to our neighborhoods because we want to live with people with the same political party as us. The election doesn't end. The political leaders continually create division. So how do we get back to a place where there's common ground again? Now, the civic imagination is that our ability to imagine what that looks like, what an ideal world is, what we're trying to build, what our connections to each other are, and every moment in history, we use stories to do that. So, if you go to the Smithsonian, you will see a statue of George Washington sitting on Apollo's throne, wearing a toga. Now, as far as I know, the historical George Washington probably never wore a toga. But what they're getting at is this fantasy that was very popular in the 19th century of a restoration of Athenian and Roman democracy. Right? That. America was the hope of that brought the classical world together. And that was because the common stories of the political leaders came out of classical education, Greek and Latin at places like Harvard and Princeton and William and Mary, right? The kind of founding colleges. Today the shared stories come from popular culture. And what Fandom has done really well is bring people together across political differences often but around shared stories and shared emotional investments in popular culture. Do
0: you think politics is the first thing we should tackle to be able to try and produce change? Because it does infect everything, but I feel like we would probably start with something smaller and a little bit less toxic. Like I find if you don't even really try and talk about politics in the beginning, even though it's like, that's usually ends up happening, come out in the beginning of the conversation somehow. But typically it's, I don't know, we, right now, like, especially when you talk to people, they kind of have the guard up. And it's like, it's hard to ask people to come to the table clean, but I think that's just because for so long, there's been a lot of focus on, I mean, it could have started with reality shows, which is like attention, aggression, you know, it sells, it does this type of stuff. Well, now it's like, everyone's trying to think like, what's this person's game? What's this person's side? What's this? And it's like, I feel like. I now like now it's just reduced to politics, but there is that sense of this person is going to try and trap me at some point. And it's like, no, it's really hard to just even what I do asking for conversation. That is not at the forefront of everything. And it's really simple when you start doing it. If you start to forget like everything, but
1: well, I mean, there are organizations that really do start with politics and have success. I'm a big fan of Braver Angels, which bring, you know, every chapter of Braver Angel has. Two leaders, one who's a Republican, the other is a Democrat. They agree on certain principles for talking through politics. They're governed by deep curiosity. And the goal is not to make the other person agree, but simply to understand each other, where you're coming from, why you feel the way you do. That's pretty exciting. We start with civics, as I said, which is the social connections we have with each other that are grounded in everyday life. And so by starting with things like food, transportation, education, we work outward from everyday life toward the political, but we don't start there. And so our civic imagination workshops really are designed to find that common ground in everyday life before we move into the political. Now, in terms of reality, you're abs- that's one way of reading reality television. But another way, uh, a scholar named John Hartley talks about reality TV is plebiscite entertainment. By that, he means that it often centers around voting, judging, and juries, right? The mechanisms of democracy are openly displayed. And if we look at a show like Survivor, say, people often vote against past harms, right? So someone's voted you out, you've been screwed over by them. Yet you admire their gameplay and their competence, and you vote for it. Vote for them to win, anyway, right? That process of voting, American Idol. People have said, well, more people voted in American Idol in the last presidential election. Technically, not true, since you can vote as many times as you want. And I suspect if we could vote as many times as we want in that la- in the twenty. 20- Twenty election, we all would have set, set our phone on speed dial and voted over and over and over again to negate each other. But that dramatization of voting is a really powerful affirmation of democratic principles when we look at it. So at the end of the day, on most of those shows, yes, there's a lot of scheming and double crossing and blindsiding, but there's also ultimately a decision that's made by democratic principles. Now, if you look at a show like The Apprentice, Donald Trump's show, what's interesting is Donald Trump went into the boardroom, decided who he wanted to fire and fired them. It was not a show about democracy. It was a show about uh, autocratic leadership. And that should have been a fair warning to us that maybe Trump was not as committed to democratic decision-making as one would hope for an american president and his violation of the norms of democracy are predictable from the way politics was modeled on the apprentice forward
0: do you think more people still have faith in the democratic system or do you think it's just people are kind of losing interest in it i wouldn't compare it to the times of like the great depression when they were thinking about other forms um just because obviously the one that they had didn't work out but um we didn't take that route and it kind of seems like today there's a lot of people that just don't i don't even really that word just doesn't have the meaning it did before um and i know people say well we're not living in like china or so that's fine but i'm saying like in the form of democracy i think you have a lot more people questioning the aspect of democracy now you know what is democracy what is these these terms that we use that just are based on notions but it seems like i mean there's a lot of corruption that goes on as well too that we need to highlight no
1: i think uh, it's a complex question right globally democracy is in demise right people in the 80s talked about the end of history the democracy was triumphing around the world if we look globally we're seeing country after country our democracy is being replaced by autocratic leadership and we're at a crisis point here. If you look at the polls, there's so strong evidence that Republicans, by and large, have lost their faith in democratic institutions, whereas Democrats are still promoting democracy as shared value. And independence, are trying to figure out where they stand on this question. I mean, I feel personally that the crisis of democracy is the biggest problem facing America today, right? That. Then what happened on January, you know, January of 2021? It's horrifying, scary situation, which pushes us as close to civil war as we've been since the middle of the 19th century. Give you an illustration: We were in Kentucky doing one of our civic imagination workshops uh, with folks there. This is a state where you know McConnell and Rand Paul are the two U.S. senators we discovered that people really desperately wanted a strong healthcare system that stayed with them from job to job, That because they they had worked with their hands their whole life. They were either coal miners or tobacco farmers in this particular mix of people, and their bodies were aching. They had family members strung out on opioids. Healthcare was something they really wanted, and when they described it outside of political language, It was about as progressive a healthcare system as you could get. So then we broke down into groups and said, let's make up a story of how we get from where we are now to this ideal world you want to live in, which has strong healthcare. And it turned out they didn't have any faith in any institution powerful enough to give them the healthcare they desperately needed. They didn't trust the government. They didn't trust universities or churches or nonprofits. You know, or businesses to provide the healthcare they wanted. There was nothing strong enough to do it. So it wasn't these people who were voting for Trump and McConnell and Paul didn't want a strong healthcare system. They desperately needed it, but they lost faith in democratic institutions, and the result was they were voting against it because they didn't trust what was on offer. That's a powerful insight, I think, into where America is at today so i think it may not be that people don't value democracy it may be that they just don't believe it's possible they think a certain percentage have been told by their leaders the system is rigged elections are phony that you know it's there's no outcome that's going to reflect your values so why participate and that is the message we've been getting from one of the two political parties for the last 8 or 10 years is a brokenness of democracy. And that paves that language paves the way for autocracy. And it is very much parallel to what happened in the Great Depression when people were really more open to alternatives to the American system than ever before. The sense that democracy is broken and we may not be able to get it back leads to systemic despair and depression and social anxiety because we don't trust each other. And I think rebuilding the civic framework of our society by learning to talk to each other and getting rid of the cancel culture and censorship on the right and the left are fundamental if we're going to rebuild faith in democracy. But we also have to hold public leaders accountable, whether they're ex-presidents who may have broken the law and may have threatened state leaders to get elected have them fabricate votes or whether they're Supreme Court justices accepting massive gifts from political contributors and not reporting them. We're seeing around us a level of corruption we have not seen in America since the Gilded Age. And yet we're seeing the system so paralyzed that it's failing to hold anyone fully accountable for their actions. And I think that's where now, that's where faith in democracy really starts to deteriorate fast.
0: Do you think we should question the notion of a president? Like, to me, it's always... I mean, I'm not saying to live like in like 50 different leaders all making decisions or anything, not, not as close to Illuminati, please. I already believe deep state. Don't send me there. But I just kind of look at like, everyone looks at like, a we need a Jesus on a cross. We need someone that we can look to, to give us the information, the answers, all this type of stuff. And I'm like, it's us. It relies on us. That's what we have to do as people. It, we are the, and the reason I'm pessimistic is because diving into the seventies and learning a lot about the church committee and things that really exposed a lot of like, I'm very critical critical on our security agencies mostly because their terms are open door policies much like youtube has an open door policy on certain things they won't tell you what they flagged you for which is a problem i'm just like simple define your terms so you don't label it like
1: we did with communism or terrorism sure we shouldn't be labeling each other we should be you know we should be carefully weighing how we see each other and trying to see the human being underneath that label no, I, I let you know spoiler alert, neither Trump nor Biden are going to bring about a more democratic culture because we're in an exact a state where ex, the only way the system is working is through executive order, which is the least democratic mechanism for achieving things. And that's because Congress is completely at you know ends with each other, and there's no way of anything significant passing through that system right now. You know, the only art, you know, I definitely believe we want to rebuild our social contract working at the local level up. And we should be questioning the national government as it currently operates because it's totally dysfunctional. That said, the rapid decisions that have to be made in today's world and the complexity of the system does probably require a centralized leader of some sort, right, you can't manage a nucle- a post-nuclear war era, you know, or you can't manage the prospect of a nuclear war uh, without some leader who can make a snap decision about what needs to be made. The, pra- the process, the idea of any of these leaders making a snap decision about whether we bomb the hell out of Korea or China or whatnot is terrifying. Yet the thought that we are so divided that we can't even make a decision under a wartime threat um, is really terrifying too. So it's, it's a problem right now. I don't know where we go in terms of national solutions. I do know that there probably is still enough goodwill in most of the communities across America that if we sit down together and have discussions about where we want to go, that we will find that we have more things in common than we have differences. And I've seen that again and again and again as we've been doing these civic imagination workshops in communities across America. I see it in the red states. I see it in the blue states. The reality is most of them are purple states where there's a mix of both red and blue. And when you bring a purple mix together and a community center, a church, a mosque, a labor hall, and you talk through what it is you'd like to see America moving toward, there's more agreement than just dis- differences.
0: You think it relies on main media sources to pick up the torch and do that? It seems like to me, like even the question of journalistic ethics, you know, I've talked to Fox correspondents and CNN correspondents. And one thing that I usually point out is like, if you watch, I I don't like them either. Um, When Tucker Carlson was on Fox, I didn't like that. I didn't like CNN either. I just, I I believe the stereotype of the media, you know, they always just talk trash on each other. And I've seen it too. When just in my gym, they're just talking, they're both saying headlines of the other network, but even when it comes to equal conversation as well too. Like when I see Anderson Cooper just bring on the mayor of Nevada and ask her about COVID policies in her casino. And she's like, this isn't China. This is Las Vegas, Nevada. And I'm like, you did that on purpose. And he was like, you're very ignorant. And he said that on air to her. And I was like, well, you brought on someone that wasn't a researcher, wasn't a professor, wasn't anybody that could actually stand with you in an intellectual conversation or debate, whatever you wanted. You did that on purpose. You kind of like tried to seem like the... Higher up in that situation. And Fox does it too with the way that they do sound bites and they do bits and pieces. So I just kind of look at it like, does that rely on independent media? Does that rely on anybody that actually wants to do like The Hill? I would have recommended The Hill when, um, but I think both hosts of that, one's a Republican and one's a Democrat. Very balanced takes. They don't agree on everything, but they both bring up rivaling points, which is like, that's what you want. Nobody's talking over anybody, but they're equally displacing their opinion that's going to unite on both sides, where people can kind of get to the core message and the core problem be like, you know what, that's an interesting take on the other side. I might listen to them a little bit. And that's what you should be engaging is that conversation.
1: No, I, I certainly don't think we're going to get it from cable news networks, right, where, you know, CNN or MSNBC feels like they've got to take the left to counterbalance Fox News, which thinks it's counterbalancing the liberal bias of the media. And we're polarizing, right? And most of what we're seeing on all of those networks is opinion, not facts, and not an open forum which where the results aren't predetermined. Where I see real discussion taking place in our media is podcasting. And I'm not just saying that because you and I are on a podcast right now, right? But I believe that by podcasting puts more production power in the hands of everyday people who Come from a variety of different backgrounds who are having, by and large, podcastings about conversation right now. And the conversations that are taking place often break out of the frames that mass media produces and are regional conversations. I'm very interested in the American South. I was born in Georgia. Right now, the American South keeps getting organized around the same four years of its history that is, the Confederacy and struggles over Confederate monuments, and we're stuck in a black-white world of the South. When, if you look demographically, the American South has large Latino population, still has a modest Native American population, has a growing uh, Asian American population, has a low or large number of American Muslims living there despite being the Bible Belt, it is a space of contradictions. Podcasting is where we're seeing groups try to imagine a South that's not organized around black, white, civil war era issues, but is pushing forward to think about how we live together, how we work together. And I'm fascinated by it because radio in the South, it was always hard to get over the mountains in Appalachia to the next town, let alone have a regional discussion of what the South might be. Whereas I think podcasting is the way the South is reimagining itself. And that's the book I'm working on soon. I've been mapping out a book that would really look at a number of leading podcasts in the South and the ways that, in fact, they are reframing Southern identity to reflect these dramatic changes in who lives in the South, what the politics of the South looks like. <laughs> As we're seeing, States like Georgia and North Carolina slide from being red states to purple states, that's going to require people to learn to communicate with each other. Do
0: you think that that's media like film and those types of depictions that get depicted of that four years in the South where it kind of shows them as like, I mean, even when they played the stereotypical and this, I guess, this, I don't think this is offensive, but saying like rednecks, like putting rednecks on TV, they're always stereotyped. And it's like, you're putting a cast category. I was like, I have plenty of friends that do that. And they don't dress like that at all. They don't act like that at all. They don't talk like that at all. It's kind of like, um, if you've ever been over to Germany, they kind of make it a big deal. Like, hey, we're not like the Germany in the past. It's like, well, no, we know that now we're all evolved and we all understand that. But that's like a big thing for them is like, hey, we're not. So it's like prefacing something that you don't need to even preface, but it's because the culture is so soaked up with this idea, this image of this. It was kind of like for the longest time, they did stereotype type indian people and all this in films and then they've evolved now it's where we had superhero we had all this type of stuff which makes it's common sense now but back then it was nobody was even thinking about those types of things and it's like does that rely on films and music and other things to kind of show a different side i mean everybody likes country music sitting on a truck and then name any type of beer you want but it's about i, I don't know i would Look at the media and film, especially to show a lot of depictions of the way culture thinks of things. And I don't know. I mean, I've studied the history of Hollywood, the dark history of Hollywood, and I've studied a lot of influence and like J. Edgar Hoover's FBI into films, where I'm like, I mean, is this set up by design? I mean, you guys depict moonshiners as the bad guys and mafia figures as the bad guys, but then your FBI, they could never, if a bad guy shot at them, they had to miss. That was a part of the FBI production code office. And so it was like, but they worked together to assassinate Castro. Organized crime is real. You guys, you guys, CIA was working with mafia figures. So I go, did you do that on purpose to lie to me so we didn't know about the organized crime aspect of things? And it makes me question every single thing, and it can lead down conspiracy territory for sure. But I mean, I'm looking at government documents from the church committee stuff to all this. And I'm like, I mean, what's now a conspiracy theory?
1: Because you guys had a heart attack gun. There's a video you can watch. I'm just like, I don't know who's good anymore. Well, I think it's uh, you're asking some important questions, but no, I don't think it's just Hollywood. And I don't think it's simply a conspiracy. I do think that the Confederate identity has been embraced openly by the South, uh, as a source of security and regional identity, in part because no one's offering other symbols, right? Other ways of imagining what the South looks like. I think it's embraced by the South and imposed on the South from the outside. So every time we get a conversation going about racism as a systemic national problem that is visible in every region of a country, we revert back to debates about confederate flags and confederate monuments which localizes racism in the south and allows the rest of the country not to self reflect not to deal with its messy business so when we've seen you know the post black lives matter protests beginning to look at ferguson missouri and baltimore maryland and you know all of these other cities across the country and say we're seeing the same behavior by the police against citizens in every state. Instead of asking those questions, we go back to, should we tear down the statues of Robert E. Lee? So what's going what's going on there? It's a, it, it, I don't need a conspiracy theory to think that there is a struggle over how we reflect on our history going on here that's that shaped all of the media we consume, right? Yes, we have stereotypes of Southerners. But the news does the same thing. It's look over here, here's a shiny object. Not let's look across this and figure out how do we deal with our mess? How do we deal with race in America? You know, which has been the overarching problem in American society going back to 16 whatever the you know the 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 beginnings of the colonization. I just saw the new version of 1776 that was on Broadway and is now traveling. And at the heart of 1776 is the Compromise, where Jefferson wanted an anti-slavery clause and the Declaration, but is forced to take it out, uh, knowing that it's going to be a debate that America is gonna struggle with and still struggles with today. But the minute we can conjure up a Confederate redneck boogeyman to represent racism in America or a Klansman, which are a real threat, right? The Klansmen are domestic terrorists, but so are you know, all of these other domestic terrorists all over the U.S. that are playing the race card to try to threaten large segments of our population. I
0: would throw in even better education. Like I'm more probably, like I think government's needed 100%. I believe in sec- secrecy. I believe in things for certain things. I just wish they would define their terms. And looking at like, I have, Uh, probably more liberal, like little nephews and cousins and things. And they start screaming about COINTELPRO. And I'm like, all right, what do you know about COINTELPRO? And they'll be like, it was uh, invading the Black Panther Party. I was like, well, they invaded a lot of groups, and they called them domestic terrorism, which just shows you that. But – The government's power and inserting free radicals to try and stir them up to fight each other. Really smart strategy, but sucks if you're just deeming as a different ideology or something that could be passive as a problem, which you need to question. But I mean, even in COINTELPRO, if you read the actual document papers, sending letters to the Black Panther Party uh, leaders' wives and saying that your husbands are sleeping around with teenage kids I mean, does that restore the like the idea of the red, white and blue flag? The government's here to protect, you know, it seems like people that have been going in a wrong direction for a while and we should probably correct them. And it's just like mentioning that, like even you can't even get to that level of the conversation as soon as you start talking about like an issue that would be like, well, this is what they actually did. They go, wait, so you, you think that they're good? And you're, it's like, that's not even what I'm saying. I'm actually going to be very critical on them in a minute, but you're not even letting me get to the point. You're stopping me at right at like, oh, this person's now no longer on my side and we can't get there. I'm like, no, we have to kind of
1: unite on this front. No, I think citizens have to hold their government accountable. But that requires us as citizens to have meaningful discussions, find their shared values, and then work in concert with each other and resist these efforts to break us down into these various categories to divide and conquer us. And, you know, I think Again, without meaning a conspiracy theory, we can say political leaders on both parties do this on a regular basis. And you're absolutely right. They're, the Church Committee report, which you know, I was alive when that report came out, I studied it at the time, does demonstrate a strong history of pitting different groups on, you know, on the right and the left against each other uh, so that you know, that their ability to propose political alternatives is severely limited. So we need to be open to alternatives. Uh, we need to be questioning set polar, the polarization that's taking place. I think we have to come together. Now, work on deliberative democracy shows us that when political leaders are put in a room to each other, they have to hold on to their positions because their access to power requires them to divide into right and left, Republican and Democrat when you put people together in a room and they have access to the same same information, they often form compromises and look at alternatives to the established policies because they're not locked into partisan positions necessarily. But that's scary to a political leader who wants to do base politics for the base, lock us into right and left divides as sharply as possible. So we've seen over time this desire to create categories that organize our political thought and pit us against each other. And I think it's up to citizens to resist that and try to come back to forms of deliberative democracy, which allows us to question all of it and form new consensus, which allows for meaningful political change. To do that, we have to be open to acknowledge political injustices of the past but we also can't give permanent victim status to one group over another. And that's the problem, is that we can't find the common sense middle ground that allows us to live together with mutual respect and dignity. It's too useful for both parties to put us against each other.
0: I think it's also difficult because you could never have someone that acknowledges their problems or wants to put their problems up out front. Like I always said, if you're going to pick a president, pick Jack Nicholson. He's done every drug and he's banged everybody because you never have a scandal with Jack Nicholson. I, but it's a, it's a joke, but you get down to the point of like, that's what everyone's hiding at this point. I mean, if you look at every president's past, there's not necessarily a great one, but there's an idea that's in stored into history because nobody ever wants to talk about the bad stuff sometimes. I mean, certain presidents, yes. But there's, if you start looking, I'm like, did they always need to be? a christian man who's a family guy or something like this christian or and it's like you don't need we don't need those notions anymore but we still find that appealing we find someone that's a great speaker to be a good fit for president as well too and i just look at like i mean great speaker or they do the job i mean what 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 what, what do you want because sometimes you get a good sales pitch and i see that all the time now where half the time someone steps up to whoever to run a campaign or whatever, and they want to say a bunch of things, I just, in my head, I go, none of this is actually going to happen. They're going to get into office and they're going to go back on everything. It doesn't mean that's bad about the person or they're saying that to get elected, but I feel like it's a lot more simpler until you step into the system and you realize, oh my God, this is going to take years and years because everything's been running for the same way and building up at this point. Now we're just seeing it more because media is I'm not saying they're highlighting it, but it's showing a little bit more, but they're blaming it on a certain political side. Like, here's all the scandals on the Democrats, and here's all the scandals on the Republicans. I'm like, guys, like, this is – it's the same system. It's just you're seeing different sides of it because the media wants to report on it when it's not against – when it's against them, which is to me, it's just like, look, acknowledge that there's corruption on both your guys' sides and just talk about some serious issues to actually get some good stuff going for the – at least the younger generation. But I'm 25. I'm not like old or anything, but – through talking with so many people, I'm noticing that everyone wants to hide their flaws but point out the other person's. And I'm like, well, I mean, is everybody 100% good? No. Is everybody 100% bad? No. But there's a system in
1: place. Well, I watched a TC, I watched from TCM the other day a film from the late 30s, early 40s called Tennessee Johnson, which was a biopic of Andrew Johnson. Who most of us would agree was a mediocre president at best, right? Who the first American president to be impeached. And what, but the myth making structure of Hollywood continually had the struggle to try to construct a myth where Andrew Johnson was this great guy, you know, the perfect, you know, perfect figure for the times and spits every one of his enemies as kind of horrible villains who sat upon him. And this is what we see in all or any representation. You're right of an American president in media falls back on these myths, right? So it opens with him uh, as as having escaped. He's got a, a a kind of metal cuff on his leg because he's escaped from the legal system in I think Alabama and moved to Tennessee. And he ends up becoming once he learns to read and reads the Declaration. He discovers his deep faith in the common man and fights for it, and it just—it's an apology for a mediocre president. So I think what we see is yes, mass media has this power to construct myths that is persistent over time, and certain types of figures emerge through that myth-making power. But what getting back to where we started, what I see is the fans illustrate this potential of participatory culture to rework myths, to recombine myths, to construct new narratives around these same figures, to question the mythology as we're given, and to build something else. And that's what I see when you look at fan fiction, they're rethinking gender, they're rethinking race, they're rethinking sexuality, using figures from mass culture, but often in ways that don't feel like the stories we're given. And of course, the message we get is, oh, that's bad writing. These people are idiots because they're putting their, and they're investing so much in a television show, but they're not idiots. They are, in fact, rethinking the core mythologies of our society in, in a more participatory way. And I do think that out of which may come a culture that speaks better to the diversity of a democratic society than one where we give narrower and narrower monopolies to a handful of companies to construct the stories we consume.
0: You feel like, I mean, even with storytelling from like, I I have a fascination with the underground press um, and uh, I had Abe Peck on here and he was telling me, and I was like, well, what's your thoughts since you were a part of the seed Chicago seed magazine? I mean, you were out there You know, being a part of the counterculture, like, what are your thoughts on him? You must not like your government, you know, like, because I'm kind of in the same boat a little bit. But he what he said at the ending of it was like, I realized how naive I was back then, but I understand more about things now. And it's just like, what does that mean? Like the capitalist system kind of broke, you know, since he goes, no, it's just about there's faults on both sides. And kind of hearing that and someone that experienced it and kind of had more of like a humble approach than I guess a lot of things said to me, it just felt like he wasn't so worried about social implications of people hearing him say that and being like, oh, I can't say that if I'm saying, oh, the counterculture was bad too. That would be, you get a bunch of people attacking you. But it was something where I was like, this is my opinion and this is my perspective. And I'm going to share this with you, which I feel like that's so important for me. It's important for younger generations. It's important for any, it's like something your grandpa would tell you. When you're, you know, working on a truck or something, I don't know, just name something, but there was something that was like honest advice for someone who was generally here and concerned about just, I don't know, the, his
1: memories being shared. Well, what's exciting about that moment is the counterculture constructs literally a counterculture, right? They're creating their own music. They're creating their own comics. They're creating their own radio. They're creating their own newspapers And they're taking advantage of the explosion of grassroots technologies, which are coming into being in the 60s and 70s, which do allow for a more participatory culture. So what I'm describing as participatory culture certainly has a heyday during that moment in time. It's not anti-popular culture at all, because look at the underground comics, which grow out of a love for bad magazine. And other, you know, EC comics and Tijuana Bibles, right? This kind of pop culture that was very lump and proletariat pop culture is the seedbed out of which Arkrum or Tits and Clits or these other underground comic creators start to find new ways of telling stories. And we're still, to some degree, comics today still live with the freedoms fought for by that generation. I think the same thing is true of blogging as an outgrowth of the underground press, or podcasting as an outgrowth of radio-free whatever, you know, people's radio movements. If you look at the genres of podcasting today, many of them took place on those radio stations, the small bandwidth radio stations that the counterculture created in the 1960s. I used to have be do some stuff for Radio Free Georgia, which was the Atlanta-based underground radio station. And before us was a prison show where prisoners came out and spoke about what the conditions in the prisons were. We were we had Black shows, we had feminist shows, we had queer shows. All were part of that package. And today, those same shows are some of the top kinds of podcasting. If you look at the top 100 podcasts, we're seeing that same desire for alternative voices to be heard in the mainstream that are locked out of cable news and mass media. So I would say our current moment is an outgrowth of those underground media makers of the sixties and seventies. Our meme culture today is an outgrowth of that kind of underground comics Space. The, you know, the political role that music plays today is really an outgrowth of the kind of rock concerts, whether it's Woodstock or Altamont, that are part of that culture of that moment in time. Even sports figures speaking out on racial issues, we could trace back to some of the sports figures like Muhammad Ali, who became deeply political in the 1960s. So I think if we want to understand the current moment, we have to reclaim that history of the 60s and 70s. And we have to, th- if we want to think about what politics today might look like, we want to go back to the Yippies and Abby Hoffman and the playful Mary Prankster style of politics that they were involved with, even around morally complex, troubling issues like the war in Vietnam. There were still ways to use play and political theater disrupt our nominate systems of storytelling and representation and create other kinds of stories that spoke more directly to the way people were living their everyday lives.
0: I mean, even that's what, for me, that's when it starts. The best example of some media manipulation is when they had that napalm girl and they cropped the soldier that was standing off to the far left. It adds a different impact to the photo. You know, it looks more like the soldiers are caring but if you see that guy is like walking nonchalantly not even really paying attention to the girl that's screaming because her skin's basically on fire i mean i saw that and i just it changes things i mean even when you take photos and people put them on instagram a filter effect all these types of things change your perspective on things i live in a beach town let me tell you when i walk out my door i don't care two shits about the beach but going out like the last weekend i went took some photos you know went to the beach took some photos the photos, depending if it's a low angle, a high angle, whatever you want to say, really adds to the impact and the, I guess the moment that I was in where I didn't see it with my eyes, but my phone was able to capture a different thing of it. And I kind of, it made me kind of look at things a little bit differently. I mean, I always valued perspective. I always valued a bunch of this stuff, but now I'm kind of looking at like, how do I see it through your lens? And when you start to be able to understand that, I mean, I'll ask you one last question, but it, boils down to when it comes to when chick- when the chickens come home to roost, you know, it feels like every generation is laying down a legacy for someone else to pick up. I'm not talking about a legacy about themselves, but a torch that they can keep on passing on. And I think even talking about me, my brief conversations about the Fred Hampton assassination with people that experienced the time or other things of this sort. It's just putting out a log of information for a younger generation who's probably not going to learn that in the education system and might not come in contact with that really anywhere because our attention spans are so shot. Everyone's focused on right now or tomorrow, and it's like you have to kind of understand the past, but do you think – I mean is this always what it's going to be? When did the, When? did? What generation is going to be the one that really kind of makes some serious change adjustments, which I'm not saying we haven't done already, but some real – stuff that we've been complaining about probably long before my generation stuff that going back from the 60s
1: well i don't know i honestly don't know uh i do think that more power is in the hands of the people today more communication power than ever before and it's up to us to use it responsibly and accountably you know uh you know i think we're in a a growth spurt in terms of how we use that communication. Power that if you look at Twitter and social media, we see American adolescents. I think my hope had been as an early advocate for the digital that we would find we would start to define our own norms as we created new spaces of community and communication where we came together and discussed how we wanted to self govern, how do we want to live with each other, how do we want to communicate with each other, but instead. The growth was so rapid that we were never socialized into a system of norms which allowed us to make meaningful decisions about what the future would be. And we ceded those norm-making to a handful of corporations, now Elon Musk owning Twitter, right? Elon Musk has much greater control over how we communicate with each other, even though the level of communication is beyond our control. And it's been useful for people in power to turn our potential to talk to each other into trivia and cultural divide issues rather than to allow us to come together in a meaningful way and discuss and work through what those norms might be. Now if I look at the two great powerful monuments of participatory culture on the web today, one of them is Wikipedia and the other is Archive of Our Own, which is the fan-owned space for sharing fan fiction and fan works with each other what the two of them have in common is they have clearly articulated norms and rules around communication people aren't allowed to continually you know just say wild things there are mechanisms for collective governance at both of those sides and where those things are in place we can build extraordinary things together the idea of pooling knowledge the way wikipedia has And self-correcting misinformation, the way Wikipedia has, is phenomenal. That meets a very real need that we had in a pre-digital world. But it's not perfect, but it is a system that generally works to allow us to resolve differences and arrive at shared information in the midst of misinformation and disinformation everywhere else. The the ways that archive of our own works through issues of gender and race to try to create a space, and a perfect space, sure, because humans are imperfect, but a space where we can share stories with each other and care about each other's safety, whether it's mental or physical. That's a really powerful thing. So what I would love to see is us break down the monopolies of social media systems and rebuild the communication of the web in such a way that we can come together, share ideas, share stories, work through issues together. And that may be a process of social change, but we can't overlook the fact that they're powerful forces that you're calling the deep space. I would just say big industry, big government, certainly capitalism, but certainly the partisan politics, which is designed to divide us, right? And to set us at each other's throats. And we've got to resist that and come together on the spaces we control, whether it's podcasting or blogs or whatnot, to build a better society. And I think it's possible. I think a better future is achievable, but we've got to all work at it. And we have to hold ourselves accountable for the misinformation, the divisive speech we put into the air and the kind of cultural pollution we're constructing through our misuse of communication channels.
0: Well, Mr. Jenkins, I appreciate the time you gave me to talk on my show. Is there a place where people can find your podcast and any other links? Yeah, my like
1: podcast them? is called, How Do You Like It So Far?, which is about popular culture and a changing world. Uh, the blog is now called Pop Junctions, and it's a global group of people who come together and look at media and popular culture through critical lenses. Uh, and I'm based at the University of Southern California.
0: Hey, well, I'm going to link all your links in the description for people to be able to find. Um, again, I appreciate the time. And thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank.